something that our church needs to learn as well. And uh, again, thank you for your hospitality and kindness this week. Um, it's been a blessing to us. And so we're grateful again for the opportunity to come. We probably would not have been able to come and visit until October when the baby comes. Uh, and so this let us get out to see, spend some time with our, our youngest child. We're in the room over here, getting ready to come in. And he said, you can sit on the front row if you want, or the second row, or you can sit with your wife. And uh, I'm, I'm like, well, you got to understand, brother, the baby's here. I'm after 34 years of marriage. I'm chopped liver. I'm just the driver. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me. Sure enough, I come out. I couldn't even find her. I'm not even sure if she's in. Oh, there she is. Uh, and so, uh, and so, I'm, I'm grateful uh, again to be here. I'm also grateful tonight. I'm telling you, early on, it looked like I was going to have to get a different or move the pulpit or get a different one just for this section. Everybody was spilling in on this side over here. Uh, so I'm glad to see that it's kind of filtered in. Uh, and spread out. That's a blessing. Uh, and so it makes it a little bit easier to preach when everybody's not all lopsided on one side of the room. Our church has four sections like yours, and, the, and everybody loves the back half of the, out of the wings on the outside. Uh, and it drives me insane because if there's going to be a dead spot, it's just, it tends to be right up here in the spit pit. That's what I call it. Uh, and so it depends on what kind of sermon that it is. Uh, for a given evening, that may be a little bit more true on one service than it is on the next. But thank you for taking the time to come tonight uh, and to be here. I know that uh, it's it's difficult to work, rush home, uh, and it, grab a meal, grab a shower. Uh, for those of you that didn't grab showers, uh, we'll we'll have chat after the service. Uh, so, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's it's really it's an amazing thing about this area. We can be outside all day. Uh, and come in and it's like, you know, I need a shower, but I don't feel terrible. And my wife's not keeping a 12 foot distance from me. So I must not smell too bad. If I go outside at home this time of the year, sit on my back porch and have a cup of coffee. When I come in after doing no labor, I smell like a wet dog. Uh, and that's just humidity. And that's just life there. She had me check the weather today and uh, pretty much ruined the rest of tonight for me. Uh, so we look like what we're headed to tomorrow. Uh, but thank you again. The hospitality has been wonderful. It's been wonderful to get to know many of you. Uh, and so, Lord willing, uh, when we come back and visit our daughter again, we'll, we'll have time to, to spend to get more acquainted. And uh, if, if not, there are a lot of places that I go that I love the countryside. And I think, you know, if every time comes where we're not in, in town, this will be an awesome place to live, except there's no church. And there are places that I've been that I've thoroughly enjoyed, and I thought, there's nowhere to go to church here. And we've been to several of the churches that are there. Uh, and if, if, I, if the Lord ever let us be in Cortez, I'm grateful tonight that there's some place that I can go to church. Yeah. And, I, and I don't just say that uh, because I'm here. Uh, if I lived here, I know pastors say that everywhere they go. I'm really not trying to be cliche. Uh, truly, a town that I served in for 11 years I don't know that there's a church there that I would want to go to if I moved back there. Uh, and so it, it's a joy to know that there's a place uh, that's reaching, that reaching people. Uh, and, and what the Lord has done here is remarkable. I don't know if you realize it or not. But when you, you're a small enough community that if you're from here, you know everybody. And it's really unusual for a God to bring in a young pastor and for people that have been here for a really long time to accept the family, to accept him as their pastor, and then to be willing to follow his leadership. 
instead of saying, you know, but most of the time the way the story goes is it's a smaller community. Uh, and so the church is doing well for a while, but then the pastor does something that the, the people that have the most money, the most power, the most influence. Uh, my granddaddy built that church kind of an attitude. Uh, and whenever he crosses that, then things disintegrate. And I'm grateful tonight that, that you don't have that. Not that I've sensed. And that's, that's a blessing. And I commend you for that. And uh, don't, don't take that for granted. What, what God can do here is significant and special. And you just don't see it in a lot of places. And, uh, you know, not every community has the same potential for growth as others. But yours does. And uh, sometimes we think of that in terms of population. And that's not true. I know the church that the pains come from in Arkansas. And I know they didn't come directly here from Arkansas. But when I pastored in Arkansas and they were there, uh, the church, that the town that they were in was a town of 400 people and their church ran 400. Uh, and so, you know, obviously the people drove from the mountains and different areas. But when God's ready to do a work and the people get out of the way and let him do it, it's amazing what God will do. And uh, I, I just encourage you to do that. If you would take your Bibles tonight, turn to Psalm 6. I feel kind of weird tonight. Usually on Wednesday night at our church. Uh, and we're in a more conservative state, so things got back to normal after COVID for us rather quickly. And certainly more quickly than they have for a lot of churches out west. And, and uh, you know, most of the time on Wednesday night, I'm the only person with a tie. Uh, and so I, and I'm, I haven't figured out how I'm going to kind of transition to this uh, at some point. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I've been, sometimes I look out and I say, well, why don't you just leave your tie at home? You're the only one here that's got one on anyway. Uh, and then I, so I'm, I'm packing, right? I'm, and so we talked a few days before I came and I said, Pastor, okay, uh, your coat and tie on Sunday morning. That's great. I'm used to that. I'll, I'll, I'll feel comfortable. Uh, and what about Wednesday? And he said, oh, Wednesday will be more casual. I'm like, great. So I packed one suit. Uh, and then he's been casual. Great. All week. It's been really wonderful. And then we come in today to go to lunch and he's dressed up. And I'm like, oh, great. You're dressed for church already. And he says, no, I'm going to put a tie on and I might wear a coat. Uh, and he said, well, maybe I'll wear a coat, not a tie. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll wear a tie, not a coat. So I got back to the house. I'm like, I don't know what I'm wearing tonight. And so I brought a, I brought a shirt to wear uh, with a pair of slacks. Uh, and then, uh, you know, but the, the way that this year's been going and we've gained so much weight back this year. I say we because I'm not alone. I'm not the only guilty party. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's just been a struggle. And we're, we're, uh, so I'm like, if I, if I wear a coat, it'll hide the fat. Uh, if I wear a tie, I'm going to look really bad up there. Pastor took a picture on Sunday from down on the floor of me up here, and I was so grateful I had a coat on. Uh, normally, when you're fat, you like pictures from high angles, not low ones. Uh, they help you. And so, you know, when I walked in tonight, and there he sat with his tie on, uh, he said, great, I've got the tie, you've got the coat. Between the two of us, we got it figured out. I was so confused this afternoon, I didn't know whether I was supposed to wear a suit or a tutu. Uh, and I figured... That since we were not in Denver and we're out in Cortez, that the suit would be the better option. Uh, and so, <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just grateful to be here tonight. And so, all right, Psalm 6 tonight, we're going to look at this entire psalm. We started uh, on Wednesday nights last, last summer. Uh, I don't know if I've got this thing too close or what, I'm popping. Um, we started last summer going through the book of Psalms on Wednesday night. We take one psalm per week. Um, no matter how short, no matter how long. And it's been a blessing to me. It's been a challenge to me. It's really challenging to, to 
cram a one into a longer one. Uh, we're just doing, it's kind of a survey. But there have been a few that have really just captivated and impacted me personally and at times different people in our church. And this is one of those from probably whenever I studied this out and the Lord led us to it, it was in August probably of last year. I didn't look back to see exactly when. But I think in terms of revival, it's a little bit unusual, but it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how God just presents things to us in different ways in the scripture. We think about revivals. Pastors worry about revivals. We, uh, I, I typically, when, when things were normal before a hurricane, a tropical storm, and, and COVID, my church calendar generally was scheduled 18 months out, solid. If you were a missionary and you called me, what have you got 18 months from now? Because we're booked. Uh, revivals were planned and scheduled. Speakers were planned. And, and we're that way back to that. We have a, a revival in January. Uh, I think every revival speaker is scheduled through 26 um, and has been for, you know, we've, we've been through one or two. September's been a little bit more of a struggle to get those scheduled. Uh, and there are different things going on. And it's, it's, we're trying to get back to having one on a regular basis. And, you know, last year we had one in September. Then we had one in January. And my assistant pastor's wife she said, and it seems like we're having a lot of revivals, but, but man, things have been really good. And he said, really, we haven't had that many. We just had one in September and we had one in January. And it just seemed like with all the extra activity and things that were going on that it was more. But I'll tell you something about revivals. Pastors schedule revivals because we want to just kind of inject some life back into things. But it's not up to us. It's just an event on the calendar. Really, a revival on the calendar is nothing more than a conference or, um, you know, an, an outreach event or a vacation Bible school, right. unless God does something with it. Yeah. And so revival is something that we all need, whether we realize it or not. Right. And what he said about it tonight is exactly true. What you experience whenever you feel like, oh man, that was awesome. Kids come back from a week from camp. We come out for a week of revival and God's moved and we've surrendered. We've humbled ourselves. We've sought forgiveness for sin. And we're like, man, this is awesome. That really should be the norm. Should be. And, you know, we, we, we have prayer meetings. We do all kinds of things. And generally, when you study revivals, the, the, the launch and start of revivals are almost always linked to prayer meetings. And rightfully so. A famous revival I just read about. I just read this this week. Sitting on the front porch with a cup of coffee uh, before anybody else was up and, and, and reading and and I'm reading through this book, and he's talking about the Moravian Revival. And so that, that made, if you're not a student of revivals, you may not recognize that, and that's okay. Moravian Revival was a revival that, that, that shook the known world. And the guy that was preaching when it started uh, was a nobleman who was, that went by the Count Zinzendorf. And that uh, was an area of Germany, uh, and he preached, and... Things were just okay. And he got to preaching. And one night, it just broke out. He preached, and it didn't end. I mean, he stopped preaching, but the service didn't stop. And people started just weeping. And they started going to one another. And they started this guy on this side of the room that was bitter with someone over here went to them and got it right and 
It continued for hours. The result, and if you study revivals and you ask a student of revivals to what is attributed the great Moravian revival, they would tell you it's the prayer meeting. But the truth of the matter is, is that the real catalyst for that particular revival wasn't the prayer meeting. It was the church coming together and getting their hearts right with one another, coming together in unity. And what that birthed was a prayer meeting that lasted for 100 years. And people look at that revival and say, it's a 100-year prayer meeting because of this revival. It was because one church came together and put aside their differences and resolved their hurts and let God be glorified and they became a family. And revival comes when we become a family. Now, that's not really the message tonight. That's just kind of the preference of it's revival time. Not because it's on the calendar, but because the Holy Spirit has helped it become the desire of our heart. Now, no one can schedule that for you. No one can promote that to you. You have to desire it. If you desire that tonight, what David is going to give us in Psalm 6, not David me, David the king of Israel, is, could be transformational. But if we don't desire it, it's just going to be another midweek service. That's not up to me. That's up to you. So, Pastor, what about it's up to the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit wants to move. If we'll let him. So if you found Psalm 6 there, we're going to look here at all 10 verses. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. And I want to speak tonight on this thought just very simply from heartache to hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us, that you love us enough to, to chase after us when we stray, that you've not left us alone, that you have done everything necessary for us to not only know that you're our Savior, but for us to live a victorious and abundant life. Lord, I pray that you would revive us tonight. I pray that you would convict us of our sin. I'm not going to name sin tonight. But we should leave convicted deeply of our sin this evening. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see what David was trying to convey as he shares with us his heart. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. 
All right, as we look here again, I want you to notice in the title. In the title, he'll say, To the chief musician on Neganoth, upon Shemineth, a psalm of David. And so he identifies for us the writer. And I say writer intentionally. God is the author. He used human writers to put it on paper uh, or on tablet or whatever the motive uh, of writing was at the given era of the scripture being given. But he says on Neganoth. Neganoth, in this particular case, means stringed instruments. All right. So some people will tell you that every time you see a word like that in the title, that it always means a stringed instrument. It doesn't. Neganoth means a stringed instrument. Now, it doesn't identify for us exactly, specifically, which stringed instrument. But what he's trying to do is set the mood for which this psalm is to be sung and to be practiced in worship. Then he says, upon Shemineth. Shemineth means the eighth. In musical terms, and I'm not a musical person like your pastor is, but in musical terms, it's an octave. And it's a low octave in this case. When he says to them that this is to be done on stringed instruments in an, a bass octave, what he's doing is he's trying to tell them when this is used, this is to be used with bass tones on stringed instruments because this is a heavy, weighty song. This is something that is dreary. It's not a happy song. It's a dreary one. Now it is happy. He doesn't just leave us down in the valley. He brings us back and gives us uh, the hope of what God is going to do. But we have to understand what David's intent is if we're going to truly understand what this psalm is trying to convey to us. So it's heavy. It's dreary. It's, it's, it's about knowing that when our soul is crushed, that there is hope and that God will hear and answer prayer. Psalm 6 is the first of seven penitential psalms. So if you study the book of Psalms, you study, you'll find uh, that sometimes Psalms will be classified into different categories. Uh, and it is the first of seven penitential Psalms. The other uh, are Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. We know Psalm 51 because David's great, his great cry of, of repentance and getting right with God after the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. So these are the penitential Psalms. Now, penitential is a word that religion likes to use, okay? So let's understand really what we're talking about here. The word penitential means proceeding from or expressing penance. Now, in a religious world, in a religious rights world, that manifests itself in, okay, I need forgiveness, so I have to be repentant and I need to be penitent in my heart, which means that I need to do penance. So I've got to crawl through glass while I'm reciting uh, and chanting a, a religious rite or praying over some beads or uh, doing different things. There are actually a set of stairs <coughs> at the Vatican in Rome that were transported from somewhere else in the old world uh, that, that people will go there and they'll crawl up them on their knees as an act of, of penance. Uh, and so down in, in Mexico, they literally will crawl through glass uh, as, in an act of penance. Uh, and so that, that's not biblical, okay? So that's not what the penitential psalms are talking about. It's not an outward act. It is a reflection of the inward heart. It's me. It's my, 
Walk with God, my spirit with God. So it's proceeding from or expressing penance or repentance. It's pain. So the idea is, is that I'm, I am, I've committed sin because I've committed sin in my spirit, in my soul, and even on my body, I'm experiencing pain because I've sinned against God. I'm not, I'm not out doing an act of penance. I'm talking about when my sin has affected me so deeply that it begins to affect my physical health. All right. If you see someone that deals with very deep depression, at some point it begins to affect their physical health. Other deep emotional wounds begin in time to affect us physically. The weight of sin should affect us if it's unconfessed and unforgiven physically. And that's the idea here that David is, is laying out. It is sorrow or grief of heart for sins or offenses. It is an act of con contrition. God said that he would not despise a contrite heart. And so if I want God's attention and I have had sin in my life, a contrite heart makes him sit up and say, okay, they're coming home. It, it gives God hope, if you will. Give me a little liberty there. It gives God hope as a parent would have hope for a child, maybe that you've been praying for that's wayward, that begins to do some things that make you think that maybe they're going to return to what I taught them and how I love them. So that, that's the idea here in a penitential psalm. It is the mood of the psalm. And it hints that the writer is speaking as one who is sick. So as David is writing, in the mood that he set through the introduction, through the title, through the idea that we know that this is a penitential psalm, is that David is writing this as someone who is sick because of his sin. Now, he doesn't tell us what sin. Though this psalm is all about getting right with God, he never confesses his sin specifically in this psalm. I'm not saying tonight that the Bible teaches that sometimes it's not necessary to confess our sin. I believe that it, it always is. But the purpose of this psalm isn't to focus on the act of confession. It's rather to focus on the impact of that sin in my heart, in my spirit, in my life, before confession. And I say that tonight, and I believe it's important for us tonight, because I really believe that in, 20, in the 2020s, the church has lost that. We don't see our sin like we did when we got saved. Let me put it this way. If someone were to come in tonight and they, they were known to be the town adulteress or the town drunkard or the town thief who maybe just got out and really wanted to turn their life around and they managed this time to be convincing and they came and they sat to the service and they walked the aisle and they confess their sin and they accepted Christ as their Savior, everyone would be overjoyed 
if it was believed to be sincere and genuine because God did a mighty and awesome work in saving someone that no one in town thought was reachable. God forgave a great sin. But if you've been saved for 20 years or 10 or 30 or more and your sin is the angry spirit that you had for the guy that pulled out in front of you on the highway or the person that visited today that sat in your seat and you're disciplined and kind enough to know I'm not going to say anything about it but inside you got a real problem with it or the, the petty anger that you expressed to your child or your spouse on the way out the door. Well, pastor, but that's just, that's not the same. You can't compare. You can't compare an adulterer getting right with God or a drug addict getting right with God, getting sober over me getting angry over nothing and lashing out at my husband or wife. That's our problem. That's why we don't have revival. Because we don't see our sin as the big sin. Therefore, we don't see ourselves in the same light. We feel without, without, under, without realizing it at times that we're maybe just a little bit better than that drunkard off the street. Or that person that we had to buy a meal for. Or that person that the church had to pay the light bill for. That won't work. And I was telling you tonight. What we're in desperate need of. Is being brought to our knees. Being kept awake at night. Not being able to function. Because we said an unkind word. Or because we had an impure thought. Or because we're bitter about something. Nobody can see my sin, so it's not as big of a deal. God sees it all. And what David is conveying here, and I believe part of the reason that he doesn't tell us what specific sin it is. David had plenty of very big sins in his life. It's amazing that God called David a man after his own heart. But he was. And I'll tell you why he was. Because he always saw his sin as a sin against God. And a sin that needed to be confessed. And no matter how small or how great David sinned, he always came back to God and forgiveness, seeking forgiveness. It's the thing that sets him apart from all the others. The, the things that, yeah, his crimes were greater, but he always had a heart to be drawn back to God. So again, we don't know the occasion specifically. What we do know is that David was under chastening from God. Notice in verse number one, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. God, you're rebuking me. Don't do it in anger. Okay, God, I know that I need to be chastened. Just don't do it in anger. It's the difference between a parent lovingly disciplining their child because the child needs to be taught rather than waiting until they explode in anger and the, the punishment of the child is more about the parent venting anger than it is correcting the child. Did the child need the correction? Yes. Was the parent helping the child by doing it in anger? I could argue 
that in some cases, many cases, especially as our children get older, that you begin to do more harm to your children than you're doing, than you're helping them. But a loving parent will chasten their child. What David's crying is here is, God, you're chastening me. The instruments of your chastening, of God's chastening, are addressed in the psalm. And we'll get to that. He's <coughs> saying, <coughs> excuse me, God, you're chastening me. Please don't do it in anger. And so, when we look here, he's, he's expressing in this penitential psalm, but in, in nowhere is, this sin, is he confessing sin. And he's recognizing that the effects of this sin upon my soul, upon my body, upon my spirit, are crushing me. And he's pleading with God to respond and for his enemies to be evicted. And in praying that his enemies are being evicted, he's recognizing that these enemies are the instrument of God's chastening in his life. Now, I'm going to get into the message here. First of all, tonight, I want you to see the effects of sin. How should my sin, no matter how big or how small, how should my sin affect me? If I love the Lord the way that I should, if I want to honor my Father in heaven the way that I should, if I am appropriately grateful for the salvation and the cost of that salvation that God has provided to me and the provision that God has for me and the indwelling power and the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life, how should my sin, again, no matter how great or small, how should it affect me? Notice what he says here and in the text, the effects of sin. Sin weakens the believer. Notice in verse number two, he said, have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. The word weak here carries the connotation of a wilting plant. Now, different plants tolerate sun, lack of water, different ways. Uh, my wife bought a couple of peace lilies <coughs> for the platform at church around Easter time or for Easter Sunday. And, and they're pretty forgiving. But if they, if they go too long without water, they, they start to look really wilty. They just look sad. I mean, they look like they're depressed. They're just, they're, just not, they're just not a happy flower anymore. They start to droop. That's what he's talking about. That's what the word weak here means. So my sin should weaken me. It, it should take some joy. It should take the pep out of my step. It, it should take, the, the good thing about our peace lilies is, is you give them some water and about 15 minutes later they look like everything's great. But what David is saying here is he's saying, listen, sin weakened me and sin should weaken the believer. It, it, it should wither me. It won't be too long. The snow melt will be done. The reservoirs will be full and start to actually be used instead of filling up. Things will get restricted. All the things that have been green for the spring are going to start going back to their normal golden brown. They're going to wither. We were driving out, Brother Dale, up to Dolores Canyon yesterday. And we're driving down the county road and there's blue bonnets. I think there were blue bonnets. And blue bonnets is like, that's a big thing in Texas. It's a safe flower. They only come out late February to the end of March in Texas. And then maybe suit them in April if it doesn't get hot too early. Um, and, and then they're done. We could see some remnants of burnt up blue bonnets on our way on the drive up whenever we got up in the North Texas. And there they're just booming and they're, they're beautiful and they're fully uh, blossomed out. And, 
uh, and look wonderful, but it won't be long when, when it, before they just begin to wither away. If you have sin in your life that's unconfessed, it's going to cause you to wither away from God. It's, it's going to cause your joy to wither. It's going to cause God's power to wither. It's going to cause the good relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ to wither. You know, you're going to, you're someone that you're really close to, that relationship's going to become strained over time. Not because you've offended them or they've offended you, but you're going in different directions. And when you're moving in different directions, it's just a matter of time before you grow so far apart that there's not really much left to communicate about. The effects of sin that weaken the believer. Sin vexes the body. Notice it's still in verse number two. Oh Lord, heal me for my bones are vexed. Now we're talking about our real support structure, our skeletal structure, the, the, the bone, the marrow of the bone that manufactures that life-giving blood. The source of life. We can't, we can't live without healthy blood. We can't live without the heart pumping. The heart doesn't have anything to pump if the bone marrow is not making blood. When the, when the bones wither, when the bones are sore and bruised and eroded and, uh, and eaten up with, uh, with the cancer of sin, we're vexed. He says, my bones are vexed. Verse number three, my soul is also sore vexed. And then we see that the this, this sin thirdly vexes the soul. So we see in the effects of sin that it weakens the believer, it vexes the body, begins to affect my, my, my joy. It begins to affect how I interact with others. The guilt begins to overwhelm. It begins to become a wedge between brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it becomes a, a vexing of soul. It's affected my mind and my soul becomes in anguish. And he expresses that when he says, oh Lord, how long? And I read it that way intentionally uh, when I was reading through the text at the beginning of the message. Because when you study the language here, that's the way that he's saying it. He's, he's crying out and he's saying, my soul also is sore vexed, but, but thou, O oh Lord, how long? How long does this have to endure? How long until you hear me? How long is my chastening? How long am I going to have to endure this? And he's crying out to God. It vexes the soul. Notice fourthly in verse uh, number six, he says it exhausts the spirit. And he goes on and back up here, verse four, return, O Lord, deliver my soul. Oh, save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death, there is no remembrance of thee. Now he's crying out to God. God, if I die, he's in fear of death. I can't praise you if I'm dead. I can't serve you if I'm not here, God. David's being so affected and overwhelmed by his sin that he fears that he's not going to survive. It exhausts the spirit. Notice in verse 6, he's weeping nightly. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make out my bed to swim. My wife has a little, <coughs> a little rat. It's actually a chihuahua. Um, and so, and he's, he's getting old and he has real bad cataracts so he can't see. He is pretty deaf. He doesn't hear much. He's starting to get signs of dementia. Um, he'll, he'll stand up and walk into a wall or forget which way he's going. And you just have to kind of lead him out. And once in a while at night, you'll, and he sleeps in the laundry room, which is right outside our bedroom door, you'll hear him just moaning. 
And so, you know, sooner than later, uh, we'll have to, you know, do the, the merciful thing and put them down. But so far, she's been resistant to say goodbye. Uh, and so uh, it, it's just it's just a hard thing. Uh, but he'll moan because he's he's just laying there asleep. No one's messing with him. It just hurts. David's saying, it just hurt. I got COVID early when it was its strongest. And I got sick on June the 29th. I, I was running and jogging, walking, and, and lost 30 pounds before I got sick. Intentionally. Probably saved my life. And then I got sick and I lost 28 pounds in 20 days. I slept 20 hours a day. It took me 30 minutes to eat four crackers so I could take some medicine. My wife would mask up like she was going to a nuclear chamber to come into our bedroom and try to get me some soup or, uh, for, for several weeks. I didn't go back to church until the middle of August. I did not preach for two weeks after that. Whenever I got sick, I ran that morning five miles in about 55 minutes. The first day that I went outside and tried to walk six or seven weeks later, I didn't make it an eighth or a quarter of a mile before I had to sit down on the curb and take a break. I was done. No strength. No energy. I was vexed. You understand what I'm trying to say tonight? Sin should, if it's unconfessed, vex the heart and the soul and the mind and the spirit and the body of a believer. If I love the Lord... Notice what he says in verse 7. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. It dominates the mind. To put it this way, his sin got to the point where he could not sleep at night because it's all he could think about. All he could think about was what's coming next. What is this going to produce? What is this going to do to me? Let me ask you a question. And this is the, there are two more points, but really that first point is the message. The rest of this is going to go really fast. But before we move into this second point, I want you to consider this question. How long has it been Christian? Since you, can you even remember? Can I even remember a sin in my life that has affected me even slightly in this fashion. Because it should. If I love the Lord, if I'm walking with the Lord, if my desire is to follow and please the Lord and to honor the Lord, the smallest of sins, the smallest dishonor, the smallest disgrace would cause me to feel disjointed and overwhelmed. When I was in the military, I was in, I was in, I, I enlisted to go on a, a contract for communications. And in my dumb, stupid, 20-year-old mind, I'm thinking satellites, satellite comms. Well, the contract I signed 
was the one that basically just puts a pack on your back and a rifle in your hand out on the front line with, and the radio is just a target. I mean, the enemy knows you're the one calling in air support and artillery, so they're going to kill you first. So officers first and then you. They're going to take you out. So I'm in boot camp and I'm sitting there and this master gunnery sergeant comes in and I've never seen so many stripes. And he goes and talks to the drill instructors and he says, who is recruit Crips? And they bring him down to me and he says, I want you to come with me. And I'm going off with him to some office and I have no idea what it is that I've done, but that's what's going through my, what have I done? And he says, son, you're going to be 21 years old by the time you graduate from boot camp. I said, yes, sir. And he said, you've never been arrested? No. I've never even had a parking ticket. I've never even, at that point, I've never even pulled over. And he said, well, he said, we're looking for people that we can give high security clearances to. He said, I can give you two options. Or all three, really. He said, you can keep the contract that you signed. Communications, you can do what you said it to do. You won't see from me again. Or you can pick a language from a list of languages, go to language school for a year, learn the language, go into intelligence. And basically, I would be sitting there listening to radio traffic and just listening for suspicious activity and reporting it up the chain. He said, or you can go to the White House. Now he said, now let me explain, the White House doesn't necessarily mean the White House. It could mean, it could mean Marine Helicopter Squadron 1, which is helicopters that fly in to the South Lawn, fly the President back and forth to Air Force 1, or up to Camp David. Uh, he said, or you might, you might be physically at the White House, or you might be at Camp David. He said, I can't tell you which one, they'll put you where they need you, but if you get qualified and you get the security clearance, then, uh, then that's what you'll do. So I said, I'll, I'll take the White House. Now, the smarter decision probably would have been intelligence, uh, but I took the White House. And so I ended up at Camp David for three years. I was fortunate I got to be there for President Ronald Reagan's very last visit. It was my first duty weekend. Um, I saw a lot of really interesting people. I worked beside a flag in my office that flew over Camp David for a day. I was the, the Marine that put the flag out every day. And so when we had head of state visit, I would use a different flag every day. Um, and so I'd give it to the Marines that put it up and... And so I, I kept one for myself that flew over the, over the camp during the summit between Mikhail Gorbachev of the Soviet Union and, and President George Bush, the older Bush. Um, I saw Margaret Thatcher, um, Helmut Kohl of Germany. And so we went to the White House for Christmas parties every year. Uh, I still have Christmas cards from President Reagan and from President Bush that we put out at Christmas time every year. Um, it was a wonderful experience. And, but when, when the president came, you better look right. Your hair better be cut. Your shoes better be mirrors. Your white belt better not have a smear on it. Your brass better be polished. Everything better be perfect. Whenever I was getting ready to get out, different presidents do it a different way. President Reagan would take a picture with the people uh, once a year uh, at the cabin that the president stays in at Camp David. Uh, and so I, I missed getting my picture made with him by about six weeks. And so my security clearance just didn't come in quick enough. And so with President Bush, he did it different. You went to the White House and you went into the Oval Office. So I'm standing there in line and there's probably about, oh, 80 or so of us that day from the Air Force and the Navy and from the Marine Corps. 
And we walk into the Oval Office one at a time, shake President's hand, have a picture of it in my office at my house. Uh, and so, but I'm telling you, when we went that day, that uniform had to be perfect. I'm, I mean, not a, an eighth of an inch of a thread on a seam. No, nothing. Perfect. And if you did anything, a, 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 a Marine or an airman or a sailor that was at Camp David, if you got in trouble out in town, if you got a ticket, you might get kicked off. If you got a DUI, you were without question kicked off. Your career was over. You weren't thrown out, but you weren't going to make any rank. If you did anything that brought dishonor, you were, it was a problem. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the Army guards the Tomb of the Unknowns. They had to sign a lifelong commitment to not drink alcohol. Or to, there's a long list of things. I, there was a man in our church, one of, the, one of the businessmen in the church that we first served in, who was a member of the Old Guard, which is the name of that unit. If they did anything in their lifetime that brought dishonor to the Tomb of the Unknown, it was a really big deal. Little thing, big thing, didn't matter. You get my point tonight. When's the last time that I engaged in activity, an attitude, a spirit that dishonored the name, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Went to sleep that night as if I had done nothing but honor him all day. It didn't even bother me a whit. We are in the condition nationally that we're in today. Because we have lost the ability to feel anything when we sin. Unless it's so big and disgraceful that everyone knows it. David is making the point, the point of the effects of sin. Secondly, then he gives us the expectation of faith. We're going to move really quickly now. The expectation of faith. Notice in verses 8 and 9. Depart from me. All ye workers of iniquity. Now notice he said, my eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. And now he changes gears. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. Isn't that beautiful? David's faith, he's presenting this. God has heard me as if God has already answered. His faith is such that he's looking at this and saying, okay, I know this is how I feel. And I know that once this is confessed, though he doesn't mention the confession here, that God is right here. It's not a matter of if God will do it. It's a matter of me getting to that point so God can do it. He's speaking as if it's done. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Presumably his prayer of confession. Three thoughts here. Number one, and the expectation of faith. David expected that his brokenness over his sin would restore his relationship with God. And Psalm 51, uh, and we'll take just a moment here uh, to look at a verse in verse number 17. Uh, he tells us the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. 
You won't do it. God, God cannot despise a broken and a contrite or a penitent heart. He knows that when he goes to God and with a penitent heart, that, that forgiveness is his. He expected his brokenness over his sin would restore his relationship with God. Secondly, he expected that God would hear him and heal him. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David's not presenting this as he might. I hope he will. It's a done deal. God, that's who God is. That's what God's waiting for. It's what he's longing for. He expected that God would hear and heal him. And he expected, thirdly, that God would deliver him. God, take my enemies away. In fact, the punishment that the enemies have delivered on me, turn that around and bring it right back on them. And God often did. And so he shares with us his expectation of faith. Then thirdly and lastly tonight, in verse number eight, he says, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. In verse number 10, let all my enemies, <coughs> excuse me, be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Three thoughts here and we're done. He prayed that the enemy would be expelled or drive them away. Drive them away. They're the instrument of your chastening. I'm, I'm here in contrition. I believe in your forgiveness and your mercy. Forgive me. Now, again, I realize he doesn't get to that part here. It's not his focus. But it's there. Forgive me. Okay, Lord. It's done. I know you're going to take this away now. Lord, Lord take them. Again, he's... Expressing faith in the eviction of the enemy. It's going to be removed. The enemy then would face and feel the shame and weight of their sin. The same way that his sin made him feel. He's praying that the enemies will feel the same way. Now that may seem cruel on the surface. And in David's heart and mind he might have meant it with cruelty. But the message from God is. Is that God used them as an instrument. To bring punishment to David. But if David turned that around in his prayer so that they felt that same way and it brought them to contrition, he actually, though he's wanting them to suffer, is praying for their salvation. And God is working. And then thirdly, the weight of his sin then would be lifted. How long, Lord? I'm broken. It's, it's broken me. I'm not fighting you anymore. This is our problem. We know we've sinned. But either our soul or our spirit, as James said, is seared with a hot iron so that it doesn't bother us. And when I was in college, I had a hand cut. It severed the main nerve into this right hand. And I lost an artery to my ring finger. And about 50% after they repaired the nerve the best they could, about 50% of the feeling on the inside, the tip of my middle finger on my right hand. So when the weather changes, sometimes it tingles. It gets, uh, it gets interesting, but it, it's just not as sensitive as it should be or as it used to be. Sometimes it, it doesn't bother. It's like if you've got a really heavy, deep callus. There has to be a lot of penetration by something sharp into that to get the actual flesh before you even feel any pain. That's most Christians today. We're so callous and insensitive. We've been burned and lost sensitivity 
to our sin. It's funny how we don't lose sensitivity to the sins of others. But we lose that sensitivity to our sin. David's just crying out here, Lord, I'm broken. My sin has broken me. Well, pastor, if I, if I was committing fornication or adultery, I would get broken like that. If I slipped up and got drunk or abused a narcotic that I used to struggle with, I'd feel that. Why should we have to go off the deep end spiritually to feel that? How much better would our walk with God be? How much more power of the Spirit of God would we have? How much more affected would lost people be from the moment that they turn off the street into the parking lot, walked in the door, from the moment that they're greeted, someone shook their hand and smiled and said hello, would they begin to feel the weight of their own sin? Not because someone pointed it out, but because the Spirit of God began to draw them before the first song is ever sung, before the Bible is open and the first point is preached. God's already working in their heart because there's no sin here. David says, my sin affects me. But I have an expectation of faith. And that expectation of faith is that when I'm broken and contrite, that God will evict the enemy and lift the sin and restore my joy and my relationship and my fellowship and will use me for his glory if I'll let him. Listen, friends, tonight, sin brings a heavy price, but a repentant soul will rise victorious. Pastor, I still have known that I agree that my little petty spat of anger is as big of a deal as that guy that won the girls' swim meet the other day. That's our problem. And that's what's crippling us. And I just wonder tonight, how many of us would come to the place with Pastor, I can't make myself feel that. And I know, but you can realize it and you can go to God and you can ask Him. You know what you ladies do now that it's getting to be warm weather? You want to wear sandals. You want your feet to look nice. I don't know why you think feet can look nice, but you do. My feet, on the other hand, the pastor's feet are beautiful. The Bible says so. So you take off your socks and you break out the file and you begin to file away the calluses and make them all smooth and shiny and happy. And maybe tonight what we need is to say, just to be honest with God and say, God, I, I don't feel that way about my small, petty sin. But I do realize tonight that that small, petty sin to me sent Jesus to a cross. Would you file away my callus? When my hand got cut, got cut to about here through my top of my knuckle. And it went about, the, the nerve curled up about an inch. And they had to dig up in my hand in surgery to find the nerve so they could stretch it back down and sew it back together. Maybe tonight, you need to pray for the Lord to do some surgery spiritually in your life.
to find that sensitivity, that spiritual nerve, to draw it down and to reconnect it as only the healer can. So that you once again can be convicted by your sin. Well, Pastor, my friends would laugh. You don't have to tell your friends at work. It's none of your business. This is about you and your God. And if we would come to a place where we would just say, God, I sinned. It may not be a big deal to anybody else in the world, but it came between me and my father. And it's a big deal to me. God, I need your forgiveness. My heart is broken. And I can't sleep. My bones hurt. And my heart aches. Because I hurt one of your children. Because I offended a church, another brother or sister in Christ. Because I became a stumbling block with my attitude or my response or my hurriedness when someone needed me to take time with them. God, would you, would you heal me? Would you revive me? Would you restore me? Give me the relationship, not that I think that I need, but the one that I know that only you can make possible. See, the relationship that God wants you to have tonight, I can't even understand. Because none of us truly have ever experienced it. But he wants us to.